So this morning we're starting a new sermon series called Waiting for Jesus. This is the first Sunday of Advent, and Advent is just kind of the Latin word for coming. Um, this is the time of the year that's leading up to Christmas where we celebrate and remember Jesus' first Advent or his first coming to earth. And so during this time of Advent, we need to reflect on what Jesus' coming means and is meant to us. And as we reflect on it as well, we also want to think about what it will mean when he comes again. Because this season is about so much more than just remembering the fact that once Jesus was born. It is what the, about remembering what the birth of the God-man really represents and what he actually did. And so each week as we light a different candle, you're going to notice there's words on all of them. And they each um, are about kind of a theme or a symbol of something that Jesus did and accomplished. And so what we're going to do um, as we light each one is reflect on um, what... Jesus is coming meant. So today, when we lit the hope candle, and so we are going to think about um, and really remember and talk a lot about hope. Um, hope is something that's desperately needed in our world, something that's really needed in all of our lives. Right? Hope is the belief that there's something better coming in the future. If you have hope, it can allow you to endure even some of the most horrific darkness that the world throws at you. If you don't have any hope, it's really hard even just to stay alive. Christmas can be really exciting for many of us, especially if you're a young child like my children. Um, but it can also be a very difficult season for others. It'll be hard to celebrate while you're still grieving. What I want you to think about and reflect on this morning is I want to remind you of the hope that Jesus brings. His birth is not just a wonderful moment, the birth of Jesus is the moment where the light of God shines in a very dark world. And his birth gives us hope that even in the midst of our suffering and even in the midst of death, salvation comes. So if you have a Bible, if you'd open it up to Isaiah chapter 11, we're going to read just these first 10 verses of that chapter and we're going to look at hope. We're going to see what Israel's hope for the Messiah was. We're going to look at what Jesus did or how he did or didn't meet those hopes, and then we're going to look at finally what our hopes for Jesus are. And so if you have a Bible, if you're ready, if you would stand if you're able um, for the reading of God's word from Isaiah chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of a cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. 
The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would shine this morning. Lord, that you would help us to hear the words from the prophet Isaiah. If you would hear not my words, but yours. Lord, would you give us hope? Would you show us the kind of hope that only Jesus can bring? And the kind of hope that can shine even in the darkest night. Amen. You can be seated. Point number one, if you're taking notes, is we're going to look at Israel's hope. And Israel hoped that the true king would come. So Israel hoped the true king would come. Israel's expectation and their hope for a brighter future for their nation was through the Messiah. And their messianic expectations was not that a prophet would come or a teacher or a savior. They longed and they waited and they hoped for a king. And not just any kind of king, they hoped for the true king. They hoped for a king who would come, who would reign forevermore, who would fulfill the promises that God made to their people. The king who would not restore not just their nation to greatness, but the king who really would never stop reigning and ruling. And if you wonder why they would ever hope for that, your answer is found in these 10 verses. I think a lot of Isaiah, and especially the prophets, can be difficult, can be hard to understand. These ones are fairly straightforward that they seem to be about the Messiah and about Jesus. Verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Their hope was that the true king would come from David's line, that it would be one of his descendants, and that that one would be the rightful king. You may remember God made a promise and made a covenant with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And God's promise to David was that your descendants will rule forever. But right now, when Isaiah is there and definitely here today, Israel doesn't have a king. There's been no Davidic king on the throne for a very long time. But Israel's hope in Jesus' day was one day that the king would come again. This is why the prophecy says that a shoot or a flower is going to come from the stump, that new life will come from what was dead. That the hope, their hope was that the tree of Israel had been cut down and conquered, but that God's promise still would come true. That there would still be hope even in the darkness. They don't just have hope that the king would come from the right family, but they hoped that the king would be a king like David was. They hoped he would be a king with the right heart. Verse 2, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This is the inner life that they hoped that this king would have. They hoped that he would be filled with the spirit. Now in the Old Testament, you might know and remember, not everybody was filled with the spirit of God. The Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, and at Pentecost, all believers and all disciples and all followers were then filled with the Holy Spirit. But at this point, not everybody gets the Spirit of God, but a few people do. Most significantly, the kings often do. So their hope is that their king would have the Spirit of God rest on him. And they don't just hope that the Spirit of God would come and fill him, but they hope he would rest there, that he would stay. Because in the Old Testament, the Spirit didn't always stay forever. You have kings like King Saul. He had the Spirit of God for a time, but because of his sinfulness, because of his wickedness, because of his rebellion against God, the Spirit of God departed from him and left. So their hope in the prophecy here is that the Spirit wouldn't leave this king, that it would stay. But what does it look like to be filled with the Spirit of the Lord? Well, he's going to be a king who has understanding and wisdom. 
He'll be filled with the wisdom like Solomon, but hopefully he won't be quite as foolish. Maybe he'll be better. There'll be a king who rules with understanding, who knows the struggles that his people have and won't just do what's best for the king, but what's best for his people. He'll be filled with the spirit of counsel and his might that God will speak to him. God will give him his counsel that the king will know the right thing to do. And they hope he will be a king filled with God's might and power that he wouldn't be a weak king. That he wouldn't be a king who's just a puppet for these other nations. They hope that he would be filled with God's knowledge and with the fear of God. There's a lot of kings who rule. Even today, there are kings and many kings all over the globe. Most of those kings don't fear God. They don't have any respect for God. They rule as if they're the highest authority in their land and in the world, not as if God is. Israel's hope in that their king would fear God is that the true king would rule believing that God was his authority. That he would rule as a just king because he feared the justice of God. That he would rule as a righteous king because he cared about the righteousness of God. And they hope not just that he would fear God as if he would be afraid of him, but that he would love God. In verse 3, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Their hope for this king was that the Messiah would be a king that loved God. And fear of God didn't just mean that he was shaking in his boots and terrified and afraid that God wouldn't get mad at him. That he fears God because he loves him. That he rules out of respect for God because he delights in God. Because thinking about God brings him joy. It makes him laugh and delight almost like a child to live a righteous life and to do the right thing. And his delight in the Lord leads him to make decisions that are pleasing to God. Verse 3, he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. So as to be a king who makes right judgments. Okay, now many different presidents of our country have made the statement that the only decisions that ever come to their desks are the difficult ones that don't have an easy answer. Because if it was at their desk and it was easy, somebody else below them would have already, you know, solved it and taken the credit for it. It's a similar thing with kings. The only decisions that they get to make are hard ones. They're not easy. They're not obvious what the right answer is. But their hope is that this king will make the right kind of decisions. That he won't make decisions just based off of what looks best. He won't base his decision based off of what is going to make him the most popular, make people like him. He won't base his decisions based on what seems to be the best idea on the surface, but maybe isn't once you get into it. He won't make his decisions and judgments based off of what people argue. Those who have the best lawyers or lobbyists aren't going to be able to bend his ear one way or another. This king is going to make righteous and just decisions. And they hope that he will judge and listen to the poor. Judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek on the earth. He will hear their case and not just the cases of those who have the most money and influence. Okay, who do you think gets to go before the king in this day to have their case heard? It's not just the person on the street. It's not the widow with nothing. It's those who already have influence. But their hope is that this king would hear the poor and that he would give them justice. The true king they hope for, also they hope he won't just make good decisions, but he'll defeat the wicked. Verse 4, he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked, that those who are the enemy of God's people will be destroyed. Those who are terrorizing people, those who take advantage of the widow and the orphan and the immigrant, that they will face the king's wrath. Not because the king is cruel, 
Not because he is bloodthirsty, but because he is just and righteous. In verse 5, and righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. It's kind of poetic language to say he's a righteous king. He's a faithful king. And his righteousness won't just last for a moment or for his first year in office, but all throughout his reign. And they hoped that this reign would bring unprecedented prosperity and peace. That's why we get these many verses starting in 6 all the way through 9 about the wolf dwelling with the lamb, the calf with the lion being led by a child, a leopard sleeping with a goat, a cow and a bear grazing on the grass together, a baby cow frolicking with a baby bear cub with no fear. The lion is not going to eat their cattle or eat their children, but it'll be out in the front yard eating the grass. You can let your child that's nursing go and play with some snakes, not worry about it. It's a painting and a picture of peace. It's their hope. It's their hope that this king would bring them true peace from all of their enemies, that no longer would they have to fear what the Romans may or may not do. No longer would they have to watch the news to care about empires like Babylon and Assyria or Egypt or what they may or may not do to them. They can live in peace. Because the king reigns. Nine, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. They hope that this king will be a restoration of Eden, that the world will once again be as it should have been, almost a utopia where no one will hurt or harm one another, that under the mountain of God there will be peace. And the whole place will be filled with the knowledge and worship of God. As much as the water fills up the oceans, the land will be filled up with those who know and love God. Verse 10, in that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal for the peoples, and of him shall the nations require, and his resting place will be glorious. Then the day when the kings rule, when the king from Jesse's line stands on a throne, he will be a signal and a light shining to the rest of the world. All the nations will hear about him, they will ask about him. Because Israel wasn't meant to just be their own nation and the only people that were following God. They were meant to be a people of God who shined in a dark world. They were to be a people who invited the other nations to come in and come and worship our God. Come and leave your gods and your idols behind. Come and join us. And their hope is that the Messiah would do this. And as you see in all of these, um, that's a lot to hope for. And this is just a small taste. This is 10 verses. Isaiah is the longest prophet. He has a lot more to say about the Messiah. But their hope is that the true king would come and would do this. This is the kind of king they would hold on to and believe was coming even as the Romans ruled over them now. They longed and they hoped that the true king would be born. And the expectations that they have here could never be fulfilled by one man. You'd almost have to take and twist and reinterpret it all a bunch of different ways. You'd have to say, oh, these are just general principles spiritually. Don't take any of this literally. Human being could never keep these kind of promises, obviously. Well, Jesus can. One who is truly God and truly man could. And so that's our point number two, is that Jesus began to fulfill their hopes. Jesus began to fulfill their hopes. We're going to go back over these verses again in case you were wondering what we were doing. We're going to look now and see how Jesus accomplished many of these things already. Jesus' birth, I mean, his first advent, in his first coming into the world, he began to fulfill many of these promises, not just the ones here, but many others, like the one the Klontz has read for us. 
And even as you were reading these together, many of you may have already seen or noticed the ways that Jesus specifically met some of these hopes. We've been walking through the Gospel of Luke for quite a while. As we've been going through it, and we've seen Jesus fulfill prophecy after prophecy and promise after promise. And the first thing we see that Jesus has already done here is he was born in the line of Jesse. A number of the Gospels, right, usually make a big deal about Jesus' genealogy. They point out all of Mary's descendants. They point out Joseph's descendants. Why? To show us that Jesus is the Davidic king. He is the true king that was promised. And you may wonder why Isaiah says, um, comes from the stump of Jesse instead of David. Okay, I think that's on purpose. I don't think that's just Isaiah trying to be weird or be different than the other prophets. Uh, I think it's almost as if he's trying to remind us of the humble origins of King David's birth. Because David wasn't born a king. The prophet Samuel heard from God that, hey, one of Jesse's sons is going to be the king. Go there and I'll show you which one. And Jesse himself, when he brought all of his sons together, said, oh, one of my sons is king. Well, here they are. And then Samuel looked around and said, oh, well, is this it? Oh, well, I have another one, but I didn't think he was qualified. He's out in the fields. That was David's origin story as being the king. In a similar way, Jesus came from humble roots. He was not born to an influential family, but those from a small community. He wasn't born to parents who were rich, but to parents who were poor. And he was born, he wasn't born in a palace, he was laid in a manger. It tells us as well, the shoot came from the stump, not just because the line of David is dead, but because there is no possibility of life coming into the womb of a virgin. And yet, Jesus was born. Where there is no human possibility of life, God works miracles. In verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Jesus was filled with the Spirit of God because Jesus is truly God himself. And in Jesus' baptism, if you remember, it said the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove. And the heavens opened and a voice cried out and said, this is my son. And we see it says the king is going to be filled with wisdom and understanding. Jesus was filled with wisdom and understanding. Even at 12 years old, you remember the story of him getting his, went away. His parents thought he was lost and he was teaching in the temple. And his wisdom and his questions and his understanding, it amazed all of the leaders who were there. They couldn't believe what he was saying. Jesus' answers, they always confounded and surprised those who thought they were wise later on. Religious leaders would come to Jesus, they would ask him complicated questions. They'd try to trick him. They'd try to trap him in controversy after their big huddle and coming together. What can we ask him to get him? Put their heads together. Ah, this, that will trap him. And immediately Jesus would have a better answer. Something that would make them walk away in silence because they couldn't answer his question. He had better questions than they did. And Jesus was full of the fear of God. Jesus didn't care what the crowds wanted him to do. Jesus didn't take an opinion poll on what his next action should be or what the kingdom of God should look like. Jesus did not fear the Romans. He didn't do his ministry in a way to stay out of the eyes of the Romans or to keep the Roman peace. He didn't fear what the religious leaders and the high priests wanted, even though they constantly tried to control him and stop him and threaten him and silence him. Jesus only feared God. And everything that Jesus did was in perfect and complete and total obedience to God. He delighted in righteousness. He never sinned. And we know Jesus didn't judge based off of what his eyes or his ears said, like they hoped in verse 3, that the king would be. 
Jesus was never fooled by people. Over and over in the Gospels, right, we would see places where it says, and Jesus knew their thoughts. Jesus knew what was in their hearts. Before they even said anything, Jesus already knew what they were going to say. And when they did say something and it wasn't what they meant, Jesus knew what they really meant. You can't fool Jesus. You can't trick Jesus. He always knows. And we saw Jesus with righteousness shall judge the poor. Jesus gave the poor justice. Frequently we see Jesus throughout his ministry. He paid special attention to the poor and to the overlooked. He didn't look over them. He didn't ignore them. He gave his time. He gave his time to infants. He gave his time to widows. He saw those on the margins, saw those without power, and those were often the people he called to come and to be his disciples. Most of Jesus' ministry, he tells us that we are to be like the poor, that the foolish things of the world shame the wise. The kingdom of God doesn't belong to the rich, but to those who are poor in spirit. Decide, it says, decide with equity for the meek on the earth. Well, Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount said that the meek shall inherit the earth. Most of Jesus' ministry, again, tells us to be like the poor. In verse 10, in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand for a signal for the peoples. Well, Jesus stood as a signal for all the people. Quite literally with his body. As he was raised up on a piece of wood on the cross. High in a hill where everyone could see him. He stayed there as a symbol of our salvation. As he died on the cross in our place. He died in order to save us. And his death has become a symbol and a signal. I mean, it purchased our salvation in actuality, but we also, now we decorate it. There's crosses hanging around our church, and some of you may be wearing them. Because we, they're no longer a weapon of terror employed by the government. They remind us and they point to the fact that with Jesus, anyone can be saved. They point us to the cross and remind us that Jesus loved us and Jesus died for us. Tells us of him the nation shall inquire in ten. Well, people from every nation are welcome to come and follow Jesus. And the people did inquire often on Jesus' day. When Jesus died, the Roman centurion said, well, Jesus was truly the Son of God. There are miracles and things that Jesus did that people went and asked, Man, well, who is this Jesus? Who can do the things that he does? Who can forgive sins like he does? I love the end of verse 10. It says, his resting place shall be glorious. Well, when Jesus died, he was laid to rest in the tomb. Now, that tomb's empty because Jesus came back to life. And that tomb is glorious because it's a reminder that our Jesus defeated death. And it's glorious because one day the tombs of all of those who put their faith and their trust in Jesus will be empty too. We see in, in many of these verses already that Jesus began to fulfill their hopes. He started meeting their expectations and fulfilling the prophecies. But we see too, Jesus didn't quite accomplish all of these things, at least not yet. And especially when you read verses, you know, six through nine about the wolf and the lamb or the knowledge of God covering the whole world. So Jesus started, but yet now we're still waiting. We're waiting for Jesus to finish what he started at his birth. And so point number three, if you're, you're taking notes, is we hope that Jesus will come again. We hope that Jesus will come again. Our, our hope right, currently, now today, is not just that Jesus came, was born, was died, buried, and resurrected. 
and that's it. Our hope is that he's going to come back again. Our hope is that what we experience, what we have read about in God's Word and in the Gospels, what humanity and creation experienced in Christ's first advent was only a foretaste, that it was only a sample of the greatness that is to come when Jesus comes again. That just as wonderful and incredible and as amazing as the first coming was, the second will be even better. And on that day, Jesus will finish everything that he started. That on that day, Jesus will finally complete every single prophecy completely and totally. So there's a few prophecies, I think, just here in Isaiah 11 we're still waiting for. His first was his promise um, to destroy the wicked in verse 4. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. One day, Jesus will judge the wicked. They will all face his justice and his wrath. Literally, we'll see this fulfilled in Revelation chapter 19. Um, on that day, it tells us all the enemies of God's people will gather up into one final battle to try and overthrow and resist him. And it tells us Jesus will just open his mouth and a rod will come out and he'll speak and the battle's over. He wins immediately. One day Jesus will do this. There are oftentimes I, I hear people object to the idea that Jesus will punish the wicked. But I think we need to understand and remember that the message of God's judgment does not make to get, is not meant to make us afraid, but to give us hope. It's meant to remind us that evil won't win. It's meant to remind us that one day people will have to answer for the wrong they have done. They might have been able to escape justice here. They might have thought that they were able to get away with it and no one knows and they'll never get caught and they'll never have to pay for their crimes. But one day they will when Jesus comes. One day all those unsolved crimes, those unsolved mysteries, Jesus knows all of them and Jesus will do what is just. Because Jesus is gracious, he didn't do it the first time he came. Because he's gracious, he hasn't done it yet. And because he's gracious, he might not do it tomorrow either. Because every day he gives us chance after chance after chance after chance to turn from our sins, to repent, and to trust in him. And when Jesus came the first time, he died for his enemies because he loved them. But the next time he comes, those who have rejected his love and have refused every chance Jesus has given them will face justice. And the second promise that we're waiting for Jesus to fulfill is the promise to bring peace to our world. It's the most beautiful phrases, I, I think, in the whole passage. That's why I keep returning to them as the, the wolf or the lion laying down with the lamb. My personal favorite one in here is the child playing with a snake, playing with the whole of a cobra. And the wean child puts his hand in the adder's den. Yeah, I'm always nervous when my kids are outside. We were outside yesterday picking up pecans. It's not like there's a lot of dangerous stuff in my front yard. Um, but I'm just a little nervous. You, know, you just never know what kids are going to get into, what they're going to find, what they're going to pick up and play with. Okay, when Jesus returns, you'll never have to worry about any of that. I mean, you could send your kids into the zoo by themselves, not just around the path. You could just toss them in the exhibit and know it's going to be fine. You could send them into the rainforest, the Sahara, or on the safari. You wouldn't have to worry that any animal would harm them because they won't. It's the greatest re reversal 
You see, sin corrupted creation. After Adam and Eve sinned, it was ruined and broken, and we turned against one another. But when Jesus returns, he'll make it all new. Make the animals again what he meant them to be in the first place. And you can go and you can cuddle and play with whatever your favorite animal is. Even if it's one that if you tried to give it a hug now, it would eat you. When Jesus returns, you don't have to worry about that. And when Jesus returns to make all of creation new once again, to make this like the Garden of Eden, this time none of us will be able to ruin it. This time none of us will be able to mess it up, to fall, to sin, to do the wrong thing. It'll stay as it should have been forever. And our last hope, what we're still waiting for, is that one day our suffering will end in verse 9. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain anymore. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as much as the water covers the sea. One day death and dying will be no more. And we wait for that day. We long for that day for Jesus to return so that there will be no more hurt and pain. Can you imagine what that day will be like? Not just what it will look like, but just what is it going to feel like in your physical body right now? No more physical pain anymore. No more aches. No more old injuries that won't recover. No more paper cuts or bruises. No more chronic pain, no more suffering that the doctors can't solve. Nothing will hurt anymore. And it won't ever hurt again. Be no more emotional pain, no more broken hearts, no more feeling like you're drowning in grief and won't come up again and surprise you in a wave. No more pain that makes you willing to do anything to just make the pain, the noise stop. No more mental pain, no mental illness, no more depression or bad days, no more times where you just feel numb. And best of all, no more sin and no more death. Nothing will be able to destroy anymore. Sin won't be able to hurt anything. We will no longer die. No more going to funerals. No more sitting by bedsides hoping that their suffering ends soon. Jesus will come and make it all not just okay. Jesus will make it what it always should have been. That's our hope. That's what we hold on to when the nights are dark. That's what we cling to when the news is terrible. This is our hope in the cancer ward and in the NICU. This is our hope when we miscarry. It's our hope when our spouses die. It's our hope when whatever suffering we feel comes. We hold on to the hope that our King is going to come again. Jesus is our hope. For some of you, again, this is, may not be a fun season. It's going to be hard to celebrate with a heavy heart. I want to remind you um, and to remember this season is not about pretending that everything is awesome and that everything is happy and everything is always joyous. It's a season of hope. It's about remembering what Jesus' birth means, about remembering what he accomplished and about remembering what he will do. Having hope doesn't mean you have to pretend that everything is okay. doesn't mean you have to refuse to acknowledge how terrible things are. But having hope means that we can and we should, as followers of Jesus, face the darkness in your life and in your world without despair. 
Having hope means that the circumstances around us don't have to keep us from following Jesus. And having hope in Jesus means we can endure all things because we know the King is going to come again. And we can do this because we know He already came once. He proved it. He kept His word already. And because He did that, we can trust that He will do it once again. His first advent, it's proof that our hope is not in vain. And it's a reminder that He is coming. So let us live this week and this season as those who have put their hope in Jesus. The King who was, who is, and the King who is coming to reign forevermore. Let's bow our heads and pray and invite the worship team to come and lead us one more time. Lord, I, I ask that you would give us hope. There can be days and there can be things that come and make us lose hope, that make us doubt, that make us wonder. But Lord, help us not to hold on to the hope that things will just get better because we'll try harder, that things will get better because leaders or world circumstances will change. Lord, help us to put our hope in Jesus and in Jesus alone. Help us put our hope in your word and in your promises. And help us to live not as a people who are trapped in despair, but as a people who are full of hope of what the future will bring. Because you are coming. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Why don't you stand as we worship our Savior one more time in song. Our benediction from the end of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Go in peace.